following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now, if you would please turn with me to the, uh, the passage that Pastor Nick read earlier in Luke, uh, chapter 22, of uh, chapter 2, excuse me, verses 25. We'll begin the reading there. But as you're turning there, there is one, one announcement I wanted to remind you of, and that is for those of you who do not have somewhere to go uh, this Christmas day for lunch, a meal, that there is going to be a meal provided here at the church for those of you who want to stay here and fellowship together, and that'll be right after the morning worship. All right, let's pick up with the reading of verse 25. I'll read this, this passage again. I actually meant to put into the uh, reading today Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, but it just happened to work out that uh, the mistake was... Uh, led us to read the passage that I'm going to be opening up this morning. So let's read it once again. Luke chapter 2, picking up with verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now we're going to leave the reading off there. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning for this wonderful day. We thank you that we have something to rejoice in, to be glad about, because we have a Savior who has come and he has redeemed us who believe from our sins and has reconciled us to you and has given us the blessed hope of the the completion, the consummation of the kingdom and the world to come. We thank you, our Father, that we can enjoy this national holiday of Christmas with gladness because we know if we're in Christ that we have been accepted by you. We thank you that we know that in Christ our sins have been forgiven. We thank you, our Father, that we are part of your church, those of us who are in him, that with all of the hustle and bustle of this world around us and all of its kingdoms, that there is a kingdom in the world that is secret, that is hidden from most, can only be seen by those who have been born again, only entered by those who have been born again. It is the kingdom of Christ which is gradually infiltrating the whole earth. And men and women are being brought out of the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of your dear Son. We thank you, Father, that even today that kingdom is in the world and it's at work as the gospel is preached. And we do long for that day when that which is 
hidden and invisible to many, will be visible to the whole moral universe when Christ returns. And the prophecy of the word, the promise of the angels will be fulfilled and there will be peace on earth forever. We long for that day and we pray that you would help us to be faithful to you until then. And we pray that you would grant your spirit now as we seek to penetrate these mysteries and to see something and understand something of the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is given to sinners through him. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> some of you here may know, I, I, I'm sure some of you do, that I actually grew up on a Christmas tree farm uh, in the mountains of North Carolina. And that wasn't all that my, da my dad uh, did, but it was one of many things uh, to supplement uh, um, the family income. We had around 5,000 Christmas trees on our farm. So the weeks before Christmas could be a very busy time. Cars would be parked all over the place. Folks would be milling around out in the fields, picking out their tree. Uh, someone in the family, our family would man the table uh, there in the front of the field and uh, to receive pay payment for the trees. And others made Christmas wreaths that we sold to people or we helped people cut down their tree. It was a busy time, especially for my dad. And Christmas can tend to be a busy time for all of us. Climbing up in the old dusty attic. Do any of you have to do that? I dread that every year, but I do. I have to climb up in the, our dusty attic and pull down the Christmas decorations. And uh, there's decorating the house. There's hanging up the Christmas lights, as some of you do. Trying to squeeze in uh, last-minute uh, shopping for gifts, if you're like me. Uh, going out to find a tree, bringing it home. I don't, know, I don't think very many of us do that anymore go out to find a tree. Most of us probably have an artificial tree nowadays, and then there's putting up the tree and decorating it. There are company parties at work for some of you, even our church. We have a number of activities that happen during the Christmas season. And for some of you, there's traveling to visit family, having family over, getting everything ready for that, preparing the meals, and it can be a lot of work for some of you. And it can get pretty hectic, uh, though I have to confess that I'm one of those people who really enjoys uh, the Christmas holiday and everything that goes with it. But there is a danger, isn't there? In all the hustle and bustle and the complications of it all, we can easily miss the actual meaning of Christ's birth. Christmas is a holiday, a national holiday in our country, that at least claims to be celebrating the birth of Jesus. And we can be thankful that many people are at least talking about Jesus this time of year, and we hear songs about the birth of Christ that have really just become a part of our cultural identity as a nation. But in all the busyness of the season, it's good for us to stop and to reflect upon why the Lord Jesus was born into the world. What is his birth, his coming into the world, all about? Why was his birth considered such a momentous event that God sent an angel. That's not something God does very often. That's very, 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 very rare in human history. God sent an angel to announce it to Mary and then also to Joseph and on the night of his birth to the shepherds who were keeping their flock, a multitude of the heavenly hosts singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill 
toward men. Why did they describe his birth as good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people? Well, this morning, I want to try to help us to focus on and to understand the real meaning of Christ's birth. Now, as you know, in the gospel records, there's a lot that's said. We're given a lot of information about the birth of Christ in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. And we also have various descriptions of the way people reacted to it. Some reacted to it very positively with joy and gladness. Others reacted to it negatively and felt threatened by the coming of the Christ. And one of those that responded to it in an amazing way, a very positive way that I want us to look at today and draw our attention to is this old man named Simeon, the reaction of the old man Simeon. This is one of those remarkable events that occurred during our Lord's infancy, Joseph and Mary, after the birth of of their son, uh, being a very godly couple, they were very careful to follow the rituals of the law of Moses as it related to the care of their newborn child. They had baby Jesus, as we read in the preceding verses, they had him circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law. Then when the days of Mary's purification, according to the law, were ended, that is after 40 days, they brought the baby to Jerusalem, and there we have his presentation to the Lord by his parents, again, as required by the law of Moses. But now in our passage this morning, we're introduced to someone that they encountered while at the temple presenting their baby boy, this old man named Simeon. And I trust as we're going to see many wonderful things and searching things about Jesus and the gospel are spoken of in this passage. And the outline that I plan to follow is very simple. First, we have Simeon's description. Then we have Simeon's praise. And then thirdly, Simeon's prophecy. So let's consider, first of all, Simeon's description. One of the fascinating things about Simeon is we don't know a whole lot about him. All we know is what we're told here in this passage. We don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about his parents. We don't know his occupation. And he's never mentioned before this or after this in the Bible. He just kind of steps out on the stage of redemptive history for a very brief moment, and then he exits and that's it. But Simeon is a representative, a a kind of personification, one example of a very small remnant of Jews in Israel when Christ came who were true believers. The saving remnant, trusting in God for salvation by grace, looking in faith for the promised Christ the Savior. Now, there weren't very many of them. As you you know, if you read the Gospels, the nation as a whole had really apostatized from the true faith of of, uh, God's Word, and the nation was largely apostate. When Christ came as a whole, they rejected Him. But God always has a people, even in the worst of times, and that's an encouragement for us. Even in the, the craziness that we see going on in the world around us, in our own society, in our own culture, Remember, God always has his people. He will always preserve his people all the way to the end. And there was a remnant even in those dark days. And Simeon, God gives us a little glimpse. He, he like pulls back, uh, he pulls back the, uh, the shade, as it were, to show us that all was not bad in Israel, that he had his people there even in those days. And we see this example in this man, Simeon. Let's notice what we're told about him. 
First of all, we have reference to his character. Verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout. He was a just and devout man. Just translates the, the Greek word dikaios, righteous. He was a righteous man in terms of the overall pattern of his life. And the word devout speaks of someone who is reverent, God-fearing, pious. Uh, basically, we could summarize it this way. He was a conscientious man who was carefully seeking to obey and to honor God in every area of his life. This was his character. Secondly, we have reference to his hope. He was just and devout. The text says, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, one of the old writers uh, refers to this as his principle. We have his practice, and then we have his principle. And by that, he means the basis of his practice, what his practice was built upon, what it flowed out from, the foundation of his practice, that out of which his righteous and devout life sprang forth and from which it was produced. In other words, his godliness was not a self-righteous thing. It wasn't an attempt to make himself right with God on the basis of his works. It was not merely an outward moralism like that which characterized the Pharisees of our Lord's day. No, it was the outgrowth and the product of his faith, his trust, his hope in what is referred to here as the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, if you look at your Bible, you'll probably notice, I think in most, if not all of our English Bibles, that this word consolation is capitalized, and rightly so, because this was actually a way of referring to the Messiah, the Christ. Many of you probably know that in the Hebrew, it's Messiah. In the Greek, it's Christ. So the Old Testament Hebrew, Messiah, Greek, Christ, speaking of the same person. He was waiting or he was looking in faith for the promised Christ. His faith and his hope was in the Christ to come. And this, uh, his righteous life was not the ground of his hope. It was the effect of his hope, which was fixed on the coming Savior. He was what we might call an Old Testament believer. Now, again, the word consolation was a way of referring to the Messiah. Uh, the Greek word could also be translated comforter or helper. The one who would bring true help and true comfort is the Messiah. And so this is one of the ways he was described. In fact, the rabbis call the Messiah Menachem. Menachem. Now, some of you older folk may remember you remember How many of you remember Menachem Begin back in the 70s? Uh, he, I, th I think it was the 70s. I, he was prime minister of Israel. Well, Menachem means comfort. Now, this referring to Christ as Menachem, the consolation or the comforter, it goes back to the Old Testament, especially the book of Isaiah. Listen, for example, to these words from Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 40. This is written 700, 700 or so years before Christ was actually born into the world. And, and we have all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, but everywhere in the prophets about his coming that reveal certain things about him, what he would do, who he would be, where he would be born, all of these things. Well, listen to Isaiah 40. It begins this way in verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. And then the chapter goes on to explain why. It speaks of iniquity being pardoned the Lord receiving payment 
for our sins, double for our sins. It speaks of the forerunner, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. As we learn in the Gospels later, that's referring to John the Baptist. And then verse 10 says, behold, the Lord shall come. Who is the comforter? The Lord himself. The Lord himself in the person of the Messiah, verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those with young. It's the promise of the consolation of Israel. The comforter will come in the person of the Messiah. Listen to Isaiah 49, verse 8. We have here what we might call an inter-Trinitarian conversation. As Isaiah prophesies about the coming of the Messiah, we have God the Father speaking to God the Son. Thus says Jehovah, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. Verses 12 to 13, he goes on, Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinem, sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, O break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Listen to this messianic promise from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Again, this was understood by the Jews to be a reference to the Christ. And indeed, Jesus actually quoted this passage in his sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth, applying it to himself. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion. Well, you can see then, I trust, what our text means when it says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting in faith for the coming of the Messiah. So we have his character. We have his faith, his hope. Thirdly, we have reference to his spiritual endowment. The text says he was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, you'll often hear some funny ideas people have about the ministry of the Spirit before the coming of Christ, before uh, Pentecost. Some have tried to argue that before Pentecost, believers didn't have the Holy Spirit. But dear friends, believers before the cross and before Pentecost, they were saved in the same way that we're saved now. They were saved by grace through faith. We, by faith in the Christ who has now come and accomplished our redemption, they, by faith in the Christ that was revealed to them in the promises and the shadows of Old Testament revelation. We have much more light than they did, but all of God's people in all ages are saved by faith in Christ. And therefore, and here's the point, they're also regenerate. In other words, they've also been born again. They've been born of the Spirit. The Spirit has awakened faith in them. Otherwise, there would be no faith in Christ. No sinner dead in trespasses and sins, as we all are by nature, at any period of redemptive history would ever repent and believe apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So Old Testament saints experienced the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin, 
awakening faith in their hearts, producing repentance. And they were also indwelled by and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, there is something new in the New Testament after Pentecost. And I don't have time to get into all of that this morning, but there's greater light. There's a new people, the church, the body of Christ, indwelled by the Spirit, a new universality to the Spirit's work, a larger outpouring of the Spirit as people from all nations, kindreds, and tongues are birthed into the kingdom and become part of the church. But we're never to think the Old Testament saints knew nothing and experienced nothing of the work of the Holy Spirit upon them and within them. But having said that, this reference to the Holy Spirit being upon Simeon is also speaking of something in addition to the ordinary work of the Spirit in every believer. It's speaking here of a special spiritual endowment or spiritual gift that was given to Simeon. Namely, the Spirit was upon him at this moment as a spirit of prophecy. As we read in verse 26, and it had been revealed to him. It says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Spirit was upon Simeon as the spirit of prophecy. God had revealed this to him by the Spirit. And then later in this passage, we actually see him prophesying about the baby Jesus. And we're going to get to that in a moment. So Simeon was regenerated by the Spirit. In other words, he was born again. He was born of the Spirit. He was also a man endowed with the spiritual gift of prophecy. It had been revealed to him by God that the Christ would be born in his lifetime and that Simeon would not die without first seeing him. And so verse 27, when Mary and Joseph came to the temple to present the baby to the Lord, the Spirit prompted Simeon at that moment to enter as well, and he was enabled to recognize that this child is the promised one. Well, so much for Simeon's description, his character, his faith, his spiritual endowment. Let's consider now, secondly, Simeon's praise. So verse 27, Simeon is led by the Spirit into the temple just at the time when Mary and Joseph bring in baby Jesus. And this was uh, for this presentation to the Lord. This was done in the outer court of the temple. And there he sees this little baby boy. And he knows who this is. God has revealed it to him. Now just imagine how he felt. God had told him that he would not see death until he had seen the Christ. And all of this time, he's been waiting and anticipation. And he's getting older and older. And he's wondering, is it ever going to happen? Will I ever actually see him? And here he is now, looking into the very face of the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, lying helplessly in the arms of Mary and Joseph. Lying there in his arms as he takes him up, looking into his face, a little babe. And in verse 28, he takes him up in his arms and he breaks out into praise. What's referred to as the Nunc Dimittis. That's Latin. That's the Latin title given to this song. It means, now you are dismissing. And that's based on the first phrase of the hymn. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And this is really the fourth and the final of what are sometimes referred to as the birth narrative songs that we have in the Gospel of Luke. Or what we might call the first Christmas carols. There's the song of Mary, the Magnificat. You may remember last year at Christmas, I brought three sermons on the Magnificat. What a beautiful, beautiful song. 
the song of Zacharias, the Benedictus, the song of the angels, Gloria in excelsis, and now the song of Simeon, Nunc Dimittis. Let's notice several things about it. First, Simeon expresses his readiness now to die and to die in peace. It's enough, Lord. I'm ready to go. This man, at this moment, had a full assurance of faith. There was no fear of death. He's content. He's at peace. He's ready to go. Secondly, he declares why he's ready to depart in peace. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now think about this statement. What are his eyes looking at at their very moment? They're looking at this little baby, Jesus. He's looking at Jesus. But he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. So is he looking at Jesus or is he looking at salvation? He's looking at both because salvation is Jesus. And Jesus is salvation. Jesus is the embodiment of God's salvation. He is the source of salvation. He is the basis of salvation. He is the one who secures and accomplishes salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from sin. Salvation from the guilt of our sin. Salvation from the misery of our sin. Salvation from the the, the punishment of sin that hangs over us every day that we live in this world. Salvation unto reconciliation with God and a new life. Live for his honor and glory with a blessed hope and the certainty of the glory of the world to come. He is the one who secures the salvation. He is salvation. And there is no salvation apart from Jesus. No salvation outside of Jesus. No salvation without Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, my friend, you have nothing. You're lost and you're without hope. But if you do have Jesus, you have everything. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than that name, Jesus. Forgiveness for all of your sins is found and only found in Jesus, the one who suffered and died upon the cross. And there he took the guilt and the punishment that God's justice demanded. He took it upon himself, and there he suffered in our place for all of the sins of all those who trust in him. Whatever your sins may be, forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. Justification is found in Christ. We need a right standing, a righteous standing before God. It's found in Jesus Christ. Not only did he take our sin upon himself and he was punished in our place, but he fulfilled all the demands of God's law on our behalf. And his righteousness is credited to us when we trust in him so that we are accounted by God as righteous in Jesus Christ and we are accepted in Christ. The gift of the Spirit coming to dwell within us, to give us power to change and to begin to live a new life and to no longer be in the bondage to to sin, giving us a new heart that desires to glorify Him and to live for His praise, adoption into God's family, eternal life, no longer in bondage to the fear of death and the glory of the world to come. All of these blessings of salvation are found in Christ. It's by being joined to Him united to him by faith that every blessing of salvation becomes ours. To look at Jesus 
is to see God's salvation. And again, I want to emphasize that there's no other way of salvation. The Bible's very clear about that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. It's in Christ alone. It's not found in good works. It's not found in human efforts. It's not found in trying to be religious, though we, we are religious in one sense, in that we worship God. It's not found in trying to be nice to your neighbor, though we should be nice to our neighbors. It's not found in outward morality. It's not found in mystical or religious experiences. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. His person, his saving work alone. And outside of Christ, there is only darkness and death and damnation. My friend, do you have Christ? Do you have the salvation of God? Do you belong to him? Is he your Lord and your Savior? Perhaps you ask, well, how do I have Jesus Christ? The Bible says it's by faith, by grace through faith. You have him by faith, by faith alone. That is by receiving him, believing on him, trusting him. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. Entrusting your life and your soul and all that you are into the hands of Jesus Christ to be saved by him and to belong to him. And Jesus says, he who believes on me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Him who comes to me, Jesus said, I will by no means cast out. And when you trust in Christ, then like Simeon, you can face death without fear. Christ has removed the sting of death from all those who trust in him. It's but a passage to glory for those who belong to Jesus. Simeon was ready to die. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? You say, well, that's not something I wanted to think about at Christmas. Well, you ought to think about it, right? We should think about it. What if you don't make it home this morning? What if you're killed in a car accident? Or you have a heart attack? So you're being morbid. No, they're being realistic. It could very well happen. Are you ready to go? Could you, like Simeon, say, Lord, I'm, I, I'm ready to depart in peace. I'm ready to go. If not, my friend, you're in a dreadful state. You're in a terrible state. You're just one heartbeat away from an eternal hell. But this peace and this assurance that Simeon had is possible. It is offered to you, my friend, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's only found in him. God's salvation. But then notice thirdly, in Simeon's song, he speaks of the universal scope of the gospel. That it's not just for ethnic Israel, it's not just for the Jews, it's for the nations, it's for all people, it's for all the Gentiles. He says, verses 30 to 32, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now notice here with respect to Israel, the nation of Israel at that time and historically prior to that time, he says that Christ and the salvation he brings is the glory of Israel. It's Israel's glory. And that's important. In other words, this is the greatest thing about Israel. This is the thing that is, is the most glorious thing 
about Old Covenant Israel. That this salvation in Christ was the purpose, you see, for which God called out Abraham and established his covenant with him and from his descendants established Israel as a nation. God's whole purpose in doing that was to form that nation and to preserve and keep separate and distinct from others that nation from whom the Messiah would come. And this is the glory of Old Covenant Israel. See, God, but God's purpose for Israel was never intended to terminate upon them. It was in order that through them, the Christ would come, by whom all the peoples, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was the promise made to Abraham long, long ago. You remember that promise? God said, through your seed, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But sadly, many of the Jews failed to see that. Many of them in Christ's day had an earthly, entirely materialistic and political concept of salvation and of the kingdom. Salvation for them meant the crushing of the Roman dominion and the, the establishment of Israel as a great power. There's still folks that think of the kingdom in that way today, even Christians. But they also thought of it as, as being such with the Gentiles hated and the Gentiles kept out. But Simeon understood. He understood that God's plan included blessing for the Gentiles. A spiritual salvation from sin, reconciliation with God that was for all peoples, that God was going to save, and he is continuing to save through Christ a people from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue upon the earth, his church, the body of Christ for which he died. And listen, Simeon didn't just come up with this idea out of the blue. This was the teaching of the Old Testament itself. And we can look at many, many places, but let's just limit ourselves again to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 6, speaking of the Christ. And again, we have God speaking to the Messiah, God the Father. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, 6, again, Jehovah is described as speaking to the Messiah. And he says, indeed, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, speaking there of the remnant of believing Jews like Simeon. But I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, the idea of the Gentiles being included in gospel blessing wasn't something entirely hid or unknown until Christ came. In fact, it's all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 51, 4. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for the law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Well, we could go on and on with quote after quote like this from the Old Testament. Well, Simeon saw it. By the Old Testament scriptures, he was enabled by the Spirit to understand these things. And he praises God for the Christ child, the glory of Israel. And God's salvation for all peoples. His coming, as the angels sang, is glad tidings of great joy 
which shall be for all people. No one is excluded who puts their trust in him. You know, the church is not intended to be racially divided, brothers and sisters. The gospel, in fact, is the great equalizer and unifier. It's amazing to me all of the, the, the efforts of, of um, rationalistic critical theory and all of that we see in our nation that has, you know, it has, as at least it argues, it's trying to, to, to deal with justice between various races of people. Really, all it's doing is dividing people. But it's the gospel that really brings justice. It's the gospel that really brings people together. It's the gospel that really unites us. It tells us that we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners fallen in Adam. We're all condemned before God's law. We all deserve God's judgment, but that Christ has come to be a Savior for all peoples. And all who are saved are saved in the same way. It's not because some of us are more righteous than others and some of us are better than others. None of us are better. We're all unrighteous. We're all as a, as a filthy and unclean thing, the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's true of all races and all peoples. And we're all saved in the same way. In humble faith in Jesus Christ. We're all made members of the same body and the same family, the family of God. Think about it, brothers and sisters. How wonderful that is. Here we are in this building this morning. Look around you. White, black, brown, red maybe. Everything that you can think of in between. Here we are from virtually every race and walk of life, part of the same body, worshiping the same God, trusting and loving the same Christ, and loving and serving one another. This is the power of the gospel on display. We are part of the fulfillment of what Simeon could only dimly see with the eyes of faith long ago when he looked into the eyes of that little baby as he looked into the face of God, God the Son. Well, Mary and Joseph were blown away by this. Verse 33, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. I mean, they knew that their son was virgin born. The angel had told them that he is the son of David, the son of God. But how their perceptions and their understanding must have been enlarged as they heard these words from this man. How could they have even fathomed it all? This baby of ours looks like any other baby. But through him, salvation will come, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. I wish I could have been there to have seen their faces as this man prophesied these things before them. But it's right then, in the midst of all the amazement and the joy and the euphoria of this moment, that Simeon goes on from this song of praise to say something else, something ominous, something that must have been shocking to Mary and Joseph. It's the first negative note, really, in the whole Gospel of Luke. As we move now thirdly from Simeon's description and Simeon's praise to Simeon's prophecy in verses 34 to 35. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, and the thoughts of many hearts 
that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, so far, in the whole narrative of the birth and the infancy of Christ, it's been all joy, songs of praise, talk of forgiveness and salvation and redemption and blessing and fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. But what is this? The falling of many, a sign that will be spoken against, a sword that will pierce your soul. It must have been very ominous sounding, very sobering for Mary and Joseph to hear these words, and it ought to be for us as well. For here, Simeon reveals that Jesus Christ will not be received well by everyone. Now, though the ultimate end of his coming will be peace on earth, that won't be the immediate effect. It will actually bring division on earth. At one point, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace upon the earth, but I came to bring a sword that would divide even people in the same family from one another. And here Simeon reveals that his first coming, there will be a separation, and there will be opposition, and it will be accompanied by pain and sorrow, and it will search and it will expose the true state of every man's heart. Now, perhaps we might think, think about it, that if a perfect man, a sinless man, full of love and grace and kindness and truth and everything holy and good. Such a man were to live on this earth, sent by God to declare good news to us of God's mercy, God's salvation, sent by God to save us, to give us eternal life. We might think that surely everyone would love this guy. He would be the most loved, the most revered person who ever lived. People would just flock to him and love to be with him and love to learn about him and to hear about him. But in Jesus Christ, such a man has lived upon this earth. And such is the sinful state of the hearts of men by nature that he was hated and he was despised and he was crucified on a cross and he's still hated and he's still rejected by many today or he's treated with complete indifference and unbelief as no doubt is the case with some of you even who are here this morning in this worship service and here Simeon describes various reactions to Jesus Christ various effects of his coming let's look at these quickly and briefly first of all he tells us that he is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel And Simeon is speaking here of the fact that there are going to be some people who will rise to salvation through Christ. They'll be lifted up out of the misery and the guilt and the bondage of their sin, reconciled to God, saved by Christ, and be exalted with the joy and peace and blessings of the gospel. But there are others who will not. There are others who are going to fall. They're not going to respond to Christ in faith and repentance. There's going to be a separation that occurs, and that separation will first be in Israel. Here we have an allusion he's making to Isaiah's description. You may remember he describes the Christ as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And you get the sense from all this, by the way, don't you, that, that Simeon knew his Bible, and especially he knew the Old Testament prophets. He knew the book of Isaiah. And we read in Isaiah 8, 14, he, the Christ, will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel as a trap and a snare 
to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. And that's what happened when Jesus came. Israel was divided. Jesus was the rock, uh, the foundation stone of God's new and renovated and reorganized house, the new covenant temple, his church. Christ came to build. Jesus was the foundation stone over which many of the Jews, the vast majority of them at that time, stumbled in their unbelief and were broken and shattered, except for a remnant, his disciples, the 120 in the upper room, the remnant out of which Christ began to build his church, which he continues to build today. Now, Jesus spoke about this very thing in his debates with the Pharisees and with the apostate religious leaders of his day. He told, for example, you remember the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Have you ever read that? Jesus says a master planted a vineyard and leased it to vine dressers and went away on a journey. And when it came time for him to receive some of the fruit of his vineyard, he sent a servant to receive it. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty. Then he sent another, and they did the same thing to him and to a third also and so on. Finally, he said, I will send my son. Surely they will respect him. But instead, they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus applies the parable to Israel, quoting Psalm 118, 22. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he adds, Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls... It will grind him to powder. This is the loving Lord Jesus who said that. What words are these? It will grind him to powder. Some will fall upon that stone in humility and faith and be raised up in salvation. But with others, this stone will fall upon them in judgment and it will crush them. It will crush them to hell as Jesus tells us. That was true of the Jews of that day, and it continues to be true wherever the gospel is preached. You know, my friend, there's no remaining neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ. It's not enough to tip our hats to Christ at Christmas and talk about how beautiful the Christmas story is and how wonderful it is, and then go on about our ways and live our lives as though we're the Lord of our lives. We live our lives in indifference to Jesus Christ. You can't do that. There's no neutrality. You can't, you can't fool God. You can't pretend when it comes to Jesus Christ. You're either, Jesus himself said it, you're either holy for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. The lines are drawn. The Christ has come. The gospel is going forth. Peter uses the same imagery in 2 Peter 2, 6 to 8, speaking of Jesus, he says, Therefore it is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, my friend, which side of that this line of demarcation are you on? Many are going to stumble over Christ and be lost and damned. Some will believe and be saved. 
What about you? Which will it be? Secondly, notice, Simeon speaks of Christ as a sign that will be spoken against. So we have separation, now we have opposition, a sign that will be spoken against. Jesus is full of love and mercy, but he's also holy. And because of that, he represents everything that mankind in his fallen state hates. That we by nature hate until God changes our hearts and we're saved by him. The gospel itself is, think of it, the gospel itself is not bad news, it's good news. It's, it's glad tidings of great joy. It, it declares the wonderful message of salvation from sin in Jesus Christ. And yet that same gospel has always provoked and it continues to provoke opposition and persecution. Why? Because man by nature in his depraved heart loves darkness rather than light and he doesn't want to be exposed. This is the way we all were at one time, even those of us who are Christians. He loves his darling sins and his pride and his self-righteousness and he has no interest in being saved from them. Therefore, Christ and his church are often spoken against and hated and persecuted in the world. Christ would be a sign which is spoken against. Thirdly, Simeon speaks a very personal word to Mary herself. He speaks of a sword that will pierce her soul. He seems to be speaking here of the pain and sorrow that Mary herself will experience as she sees her son hated and despised, and especially when she sees him suffering in agony in pain upon the cross. You may know that we learn from John 19.25 that Mary was there at the foot of the cross as Jesus suffered. She was watching the whole ugly scene, and as she did, it must have been like a sword thrust through her heart. But it was necessary for her son to die, for he was dying for you and me, dying in the place of sinners, taking our debt and our guilt upon himself, being punished by God in our place, that those who repent, trusting in him for mercy, might go free and be righteously forgiven. And then fourthly and finally, Simeon tells us something very searching. He tells us that Christ is a revealer, a revealer. He says he will be a sign that will be spoken against, and then skipping his parenthetical or personal remark to Mary, he then says that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Did you know that the way people respond and the way you respond Christ is a revelation. A person's reaction and response to Christ and the gospel will reveal something. It will reveal the true state of your heart. The heart that has been born of the Spirit will respond to Christ in faith and devotion. But the natural, unrenewed heart that we receive from our father Adam, still lost and blind and dead in sin, will respond to him with resistance to his claims and with unbelief. Jesus is the great revealer. And as I bring this message to a focused conclusion, let me ask you, my friend, what does your response to Christmas to the message of Christmas. What is your, your response? And I don't mean just the holiday festivities of Christmas, but to the message of Christmas. 
What is your response to Jesus Christ and the gospel? What does it reveal about you? You know, I read a while back about a guy who took a friend of his on a tour through Paris. He took him to the Louvre. It's it's the world's largest art museum. And he showed him all of the paintings and the beautiful works of art there. Then he took him to a concert in Paris that night to hear a great symphony. At the end of the day, he said to his friend, well, what do you think? He said, well, to be honest, I wasn't all that impressed. Do you know what the guy replied to that? He said, if it's any consolation to you, the museum and its artwork were not on trial. And neither was the symphony. You were on trial. History has already judged the greatness of those works of art and the greatness of that music. All that is revealed by your attitude is the smallness of your own heart, your own appreciation. Well, folks, listen to me this morning as I preach about Jesus and I preach Christ to you. Christ is not on trial. He's not on trial. You're on trial. Every soul here this morning is on trial. Jesus Christ is set before you in the gospel in all of the glory of his person and his saving work on behalf of sinners. And what happens when you resist him and you refuse to bow to him and to believe upon him and to embrace him as your savior and king is that the wickedness and the self-centeredness and the self-righteousness and the arrogance and pride of your heart is exposed. Jesus is the great revealer. His holiness and beauty exposes our sin and our ugliness. He exposes the insufficiency and the filthy rags of our self-righteousness and of our wisdom so-called upon which we trust and of everything else that we try to build our hopes upon and to build our lives upon. He shows us the folly of it all, but it's an exposure that has to happen, my friend, if you're ever to be saved. Your sin and your lost condition without him must be exposed and seen and humbly owned by you. But if you hate the exposure and you resent Jesus for doing it and you want to keep your sins and keep up your good opinion of yourself, then in the end, you're going to be damned. But if you humble yourself, fall on your face before him in faith and repentance like the tax collector in our Lord's parable crying, Lord Jesus, Savior and Lord who died on the cross for sinners like me, oh Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Praise God, Jesus will hear that cry and he will indeed have mercy on your soul and he will save you right now, today, and forever. As I close, I ask you, Which will it be? Where do you stand today when it comes to Jesus Christ? Well, may God grant that this day you'll turn to him, you'll look to him, you'll call upon him and trust your soul and your whole life to him as your Savior and Lord, and he will save you. Fall humbly upon this rock.
by faith and he will raise you up. Don't be, don't continue to be is one of those who in their sin and self-righteousness and stubbornness refuse him and go on in their way. For if you do, in the words of Jesus himself, not my words, his words, this rock will one day fall upon you in judgment and it will crush you. It will crush you eternally in hell forever. Well, may God bless his word. What a glorious gospel we have to proclaim to those around us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. And we pray that your word would not fall to the ground this day, but it would accomplish that for which you have sent it forth. May the faith of your people be strengthened and encouraged. May we rejoice today that we have such a Savior in Jesus Christ. For those that are outside of Christ, we cry to you, our Father, to have mercy upon them. Please awaken them to their lost condition. But more than that, show them that in Christ is everything they need for the salvation of their soul and time and eternity. We pray, Father, that even today Christ would be exalted in the salvation of sinners in our midst. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.